0: I think that's the problem. That Fame concentrates, whereas actually brilliance is actually kind of fractal. You can find it kind of everywhere. You know, wherever
1: you go, if you dig a little bit deeper, there's something extraordinary. Welcome to the Quest for Questions podcast. Today's guest is a luminary in the world of advertising and an unrelated advocate for behavior economics. He's a marketing maven who's devoted his entire career to challenging conventional wisdom and exploring the hidden side of everything. Roy Sutherland has spent over 30 years at Ogilvy, a prestigious advertising, marketing and PR agency, when he is currently a vice chairman. He is the mind behind the book, Alchemy, the surprising power of ideas that don't make sense, that takes a deep dive into the counter art of uh, persuasion and the power of non-logic. Rory is also someone that if you give him an intriguing problem and a pint of a fine a British ale, he might just uncover the hidden psychological forces that are influencing uh, your business and your customers. The three main questions me and Rory are exploring in the first part of the interview are Why fame tends to concentrate while magnificence displays uh, a fractal nature? And what are the implications of this pattern for our society? What exactly is the satisficer's way of travel and how it can change the way we explore the world? And finally, how can one effectively promote a country taking uh, its unique uh, attribute uh, into account when attracting more tourism? And can we learn anything from David Ogilvy's approach to advertising for the English Tourist Board in the United States. This is Conrad, the Erbelmatté addict, and here's a conversation with the author of Alchemy, the Maverick marketer, and the one and only Rory Sutherland. Enjoy
0: So one, one thing that's worth doing is, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by that. Funnily enough, David Ogilvie was fascinated by it as well, because I he did a lot awesome. of advertising for the English Tourist Board in the United States. Being an Englishman in New York, he was perfectly placed to encourage Americans to go to England back in the sort of late 50s, early 60s. I think pretty sure that was the time. And he obviously sold Britain very largely on sort of heritage and history, which made, made a lot of sense, particularly to an American audience. And, you know, we yeah. can't really sell the country on the weather. But there's a fundamental problem to be solved in world tourism. Which is, there isn't really a problem with over-tourism. There's a problem with over-concentration of tourists. And so you have this wither-takes-all effect. Now, for example, I think of tourist nights spent in the UK, something like hotel nights from overseas people, something like 85% are spent in London. And then you get places which suffer Mm. disproportionately, there are two things that can be bad for a tourist side. one of which is cruise ships, where you get the people, but you don't really get the money because they're staying on a cruise ship, they're eating on a cruise ship, and they're just coming ashore to wander around the place and maybe buy a couple of souvenirs. And another one is, of course, day trippers. So you have this issue, Oxford, stratford upon avon some of the major some London tourist, sorry, British tourist towns are a day's easy day trip from London. So nobody bothers to actually up sticks and stay in Oxford or stay in Stratford-on-Avon. What they do Mm. is they basically take a trip from London by train or by coach. And then, by the way, they visit the six Oxford colleges which are featured in the Harry Potter films. And those six colleges in Oxford that happen to feature in a Harry Potter film get something like five times the visitors of the colleges that don't, regardless of kind of architectural merit. And so you have this pain problem which is everybody wants to do something that other people have heard of. Yeah.
1: I yeah.
0: I'm, I'm guilty this. this. Yeah, well, I'm go ahead, ahead. This. A, a few years ago, about 10 years ago, I had a business meeting just outside Pisa. And we were just about to head back to the airport the next day, planning to travel back to the airport. And somebody said, do you actually see the leading tower of Pisa? No, neither did I. are we going to look bloody stupid if our children go, have you ever been to Pisa, Dad? Yes. What do you think of the leading tower? I didn't see it. So could we had to book a taxi and go and spend two hours standing up, pretending to hold up. You know, because, so this question of kind of memetics and social copying, and also the fact that you score more highly going to places that other people respect.
1: Okay. Like at the lists, you know, right? All that There's, stuff. there's a feedback loop.
0: Now, you know, in, in truth, in a sensible world, okay, 70% as many people will go to, say, Trieste, let's go to Venice. But what you'll probably find is that, you know, Trieste has tourist visitors that are 8% of Venice's tourist numbers, even though, you know, it might be as probably not as good, but it, it, it's, it's possibly 10% less good, but 98% less famous. Yeah. You get this absurdity. There's a British seaside town called Salcombe, which is a very, very nice town. Okay. And it somehow has acquired the reputation as kind of the best town in Devon. And so property Hello prices. The,
1: is that your wife? That's my <laughs> wife, just wondering.
0: The average property <laughs> price in Salcombe is a million pounds. You have another problem, which is that rich people aren't actually very imaginative. They want to go where other rich people are and hang out with them. So you get this absurd concentration of kind of very wealthy people in about sort of nine locations worldwide. You know, it's kind of, you know, it tends to be London, Miami Beach, Dubai, etc. By the way, I think Dubai may be the world's top tourist destination in another seven years' time. So you can break into you can break into this kind of exclusive club because Dubai was nowhere. You know, 25 years ago or 30 years ago, but it takes a long time to break into that club and a hell of a lot of marketing and a hell of a lot of building and a hell of a lot of public, you know, brand building and a hell of a lot of publicity. I I did think of trying to counter the problem by writing a Satisficer's travel guide, which was a guide to places that aren't necessarily the best place you can go to, but are the most underrated. So, you know, what is the most underrated, well, just an example. Okay. Everybody's heard of it. I would argue if you go to North America, yeah. Chicago is in some respects, the best city in, in the United States. Okay. Interesting. A but, lot of Polish people. <laughs> and, and of course, it's a huge Polish community. Absolutely right.
1: <laughs> is is so, it famous in Poland? You say that the second biggest uh, city in Poland, of Poland is uh, Chicago.
0: It's Warsaw <laughs> then Chicago. Yeah, plus <laughs> a big Ukrainian population as well. Yeah. And, um, a very interesting. So I did think of no, actually right, writing no, a kind no. of what you might call not the bucket list, but the satisficer's guide. In other words, what are the second and third best places which are woefully underrated? You know, the third best art gallery, the second best. Because fame is not proportionate to quality. And so yeah, when yeah. people's tourist choices are driven by fame, now, I don't know, you may, I, I'm going to ask this question, okay? So you're in Argentina. Have you got plans to visit or
1: have you visited the iguaçu Falls? In my other trip, but because I was like hitchhiking across the whole country. But but yeah, I'm exactly, you know, we are talking about this. We need to collaborate because I'm exactly now trying to solve this problem here in Argentina because, you know, I know the, the language I want to live here. And then I saw, like from my observation, what people ask in the Facebook groups, you know, like talking to tourists. Basically, like the the tourism in this great, uh, crazy big country of Argentina is so concentrated in basically three areas. The one is Patagonia, so like the south, like the the glacier, seeing penguins, or you know,
0: Welsh people, Welsh people and cakes.
1: (laughs) And then you have Mendoza, so so the wine. Uh, The people go to the bodegas, you know, to the wineries. And then the third one is, uh, yeah, Iguazu and and Buenos Aires because everyone lands in Buenos Aires. Of course. There is a vast, uh, you know, really great province like lived uh, now six months in Córdoba, which is... I never heard anything about Córdoba before coming to Argentina. Like, no one talks about it. In Argentina, it's more popular, like, the local tourism. And it has its own mountains, but they're smaller. And it's absolutely spectacular. Like the towns, it's half as cheap as the South, you know. The people are more open because they're less used to tourists. So as you're saying, basically, it's sort of like maybe the second best in terms of like, if you look at it purely logically, it's not a glacier. But in many ways, it's it's better like your experience, you know. Well, for example, you know, if you're a Brit in New York, no one gives a shit, right?
0: Okay. But if you're a Brit in kind of, you know, New Orleans or somewhere, they make a bit of a fuss of you because there's a small amount of novelty. And similarly, you know, smaller cities are often a lot more manageable than bigger cities. Yes,
1: yes, exactly. So, yeah,
0: you know, the so actually, <laughs> Rome, you know, I would recommend to everybody that they go to Rome because it's a city, it's magnificent. But then there are places like Lucca, for example, which are pretty fantastic and kind of walkable. And there is an interesting, There's an interesting kind of tourist guide, which is where the locals go. Because every single tourist to Spain, you know, not every single one, but you famously have the Costa Blanca and you have the Costa de Sol, right? But in fact, the, the native Spaniards who live in the south go to the Costa de Malenu, which is effectively west, you know, as you, as you near the Portuguese border. Now, it's windy. But, you know, there is a out there. You know, it can be pretty windy, but on the other hand, it's a kind of wild coastline, which isn't completely surrounded by, you know, uh, Northern European. And mm. in fact, Spaniards tend to have second homes in, on the Atlantic coast of Portugal, now, if they live towards the west, rather than going to their own coast. Mm. So now, I mean, this is really, really critical, which is the kind of, I don't think it's the Porto versus Lisbon challenge. But well, that's a, you know, Porto is actually pretty big. So actually it probably does quite well touristically. Um, but you get this appalling kind of winner takes all. And then the consequence of that is the, it's problematic. Okay. And it's particularly problematic if you get cultures like Japanese culture on or American culture where they only get two weeks vacation.
1: Yeah, because it's because, also a question of time, right? Like the compression of, of you want yeah, to do question everything. The time that's a...
0: means that, and I've got to be sympathetic about this, okay? When I first took my kids to Paris, we kind of had to look at the Mona Lisa and go and see the Eiffel Tower, okay? Now, if you're only going to go to a place once, okay? Now, I've lived in London, okay, or in and around London since 1988, okay? I've never been to Buckingham Palace. I've never been to the Tower of London. I've never seen the crown jewels, okay? I can't done any of that shit. And well, the reason it's is well, I'm going to go tomorrow, right? If I, you know, if I felt this is the only time in my life, I'm going to go to London. Okay. Well, I'm going to see big beds and uh, I'm going to see, bad. you know, I'm going to see Tower Bridge anyway, but I feel an absolute plus if I don't go and see those, you know, London probably has 10 of them
1: actually. You So, know, so you become so, a maximizer, so. right? In your yeah, yeah, like either actually, either, either. and
0: also it's, it's a kind of FOMO thing, you know. It was my yeah, problem with Pisa, which is you know, I now kind of you know, if you go to Rome, you kind of have to do the Colosseum, you know, and so on. And it, it is, I mean, there's a very strange form of tourism, by the way, which is, you know, in other words, what happens if your country people only go to you once? They're not going to do the more interesting form of tourism. So I had a, I had a very interesting. The very interesting way, if you ever go to Loch Ness, okay, about or eighty-five foolish. percent of the tourists. It's it's famous a large possible for the Loch Ness monster, which ah, yeah, is a yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, fictitious yeah, image, Okay. Now, when you go yeah. there, about eighty-five percent of the tourists appear to be Japanese or Korean, and the reason is if you're Japanese or Korean, the Loch Ness monster is like insanely famous in Japanese kind of folklore. Mm. And now the problem there is that there are lots of locks in Scotland, which are very, very beautiful. Okay. They've only had a lock nest, but also because of that 2 weeks holiday thing, they know they're only ever going to go to Scotland once in their life. And I had a friend at Ogilvy who worked for a time in Norway on the Norwegian Tourist Board, where uh, Norway gets a lot of Japanese tourists. I said, I was in direct marketing at the time, and you know, well, that's quite niche, right? A Japanese person going to Norway. I, I did ask him, is it the shared interest in Waylink? And he said, no, 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 nothing to do with that. He said, I said, have you sort of doing a loyalty program to get, to come back? And he said, there is certainly no point in a loyalty program, Jen. So, because the reason Norway, sorry, Japanese go to Norway is they want to see a naught, f- okay? Because whatever reason, the Japanese know about fuel. And they will go and they will see a fjord. And while they're there, they'll probably see two or three more fjords. And they will put a big tick in the fjord box and they will never come back to Norway ever again. And they won't go and see the cathedral in wherever it's called. There's an the astounding uh, cathedral of Norway, absolutely magnificent, which no one's fucking heard of, by the way. In fact, I had to Google it. Okay. That's the example of how shit things are in terms of human perception of the winner takes all that.
1: I, I just Got remembered
0: it, it now. I, I think it's called N- Nidiron. I'm pretty sure I'm right. Here we go. Biggest cathedral in Norway, Nidaros. Yeah, I was right. So it's actually technically called the Uh And it's absolutely sodding magnificent, but no one's bloody heard of it. I mean, seriously. I mean, I hadn't heard of it until five years ago when I went on a kind of drunken Wikipedia bit.
1: The
0: tube has a real role to play here in basically encouraging what you might call the old, you no, know, the alternative tourism goal. But the, the problem is that, as you said, everybody flies into Buenos Aires anyway. So they're going to, you know, would be silly not to spend a few days there, certainly, if not a week. And then you're going to outlook at Iguazu and you're going to see the wider, and you're going to get a Patagonia.
1: Okay. So I I'm think it's going... a bad business idea to go into it, like trying for me, because I always traveled that way. I always went like the opposite of where, where you talk about, yes. you, are, you are the bee that ignores the w- wiggledness. So I always done that in my life in many things, but in, in travel especially. And I always l- listened to the locals, you know, and it often led me to, I would say, better experience and more interesting, but like far from the, the tourist track. And I'm not trying to, to use this like my kind of, propensity for it and the fact that I see opportunity in Argentina. But I'm wondering if you think it's like sort of like a lost act as far as trying to make money out of it, like trying to, to promote places that are not already popular uh, yeah, in some way that they do do what you could do.
0: And now, obviously, look, one of the things I did suggest when I spoke to the Dubai Tourist Authority, is I said, in a sense, you've got a city break and a beach holiday and winter sun all in one. So what you could do, and of course, unsurprisingly, the people in Dubai are pretty damn astute, and they'd already thought of it five years ago. They're creating a kind of beach resort not that far from Dubai for the people who don't want to go shopping for seven days, but want two days of shopping, you know, a day of sightseeing, and then five days on the beach. You can also find out. When I went to Bermuda, it struck me that everybody who flies across the Atlantic, you know, on a business trip could break their flight home. And instead of flying back New York, London, they could go New York, Bermuda, Bermuda, London.
1: Uh, Stop over like Iceland.
0: There's that kind of thing. And so there are places which are just very luckily located where they might be able to play that game. And the other thing Argentina could do is create a brand around a kind of beach resort. Because it's winter sun, you're in the southern hemisphere. There are lots of reasons. There's not a huge time zone difference between the UK. Okay. So you don't get the shitty bloody jet lag you get if you go to Australia. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I went to Australia with my family. I thought Sydney was utterly, fantastic, magnificent. But for the first five days we were there, we didn't get up until noon. Okay. I don't... I don't... Which is a bit of a waste. Yeah. Yeah. We is
1: uh, like all, all Argentinians here in their normal life. <laughs> We siesta, you know. would be missing
0: out much, would you? No, now there's, a, <laughs> there's a compatriot of yours, a Polish woman who's a YouTuber who travels around in a Land Rover motor caravan. Have you seen her? Uh, uh, of course. <laughs> and I can't remember her name. She's a very brilliant YouTuber. Uh,
1: like a woman that's a, a Polish woman that's traveling in a, in a van, in a Land Rover across the world. This must be her. Hello. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, she's called Ava, hold on, hold on, Ava, is it Ava Zubek? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think she's Ava Zubek. I'm sort of German, but I think she's Polish.
1: Yeah, there are different, you know, certain work with and the she wars goes
0: everywhere. And it's fascinating that murder homing actually is one interesting thing because it does tend to actually cause people to go to slightly weirder places. But again, you need a bloody big time frame in which to do it properly. And she goes to, some, for example, there's some place, I think, in Nevada, which is the most remote town in the United States with a population of, you know, sort of, you know, I don't know, 106 people. And effectively, it's like six hours drive to get to the nearest town or whatever whatever crazy thing it is. But, I mean, it's really, really fascinating because it's an entirely different. And so the motoring holiday is great in a sense. And that's where the U.S. scores really well because a hell of a lot of people do fly drive. Uh, the great thing about fly drive is it does disperse people. Because some of the yes. best violence... Well, had what's the United fly States? drive? A fly drive, where you fly or hire a car. Uh, it's a fly drive holiday, almost... Uh, I mean, obviously, people do it in France to an extent. The Europeans will do it where they fly somewhere, Italy. and you know, they fly, they pick up a rental car. But the American fly oh, drive no. ho- holiday is particularly good in a way because it disperses people. You know, the, you know, and actually, some of the best, some of the best discoveries I made in the United States, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, for example, not that it's unknown, but I mean, most Brits haven't heard of it. You know, Tucson, Bisbee, Arizona. And none of those places were basically accidental discoveries where we were just driving somewhere and thought, "Well, let's deviate for an hour and go and look at this place." And sometimes the place is crap, and sometimes the place is brilliant. You know. You know, Montana. There are extraordinary places all over the U.S, which most foreign visitors don't really get to see, because they don't want, they want, they want an additional flight. And then you also get a very, very clever bit of branding. And I need to get the name right here, because one of the most ingenious ways of dispersing tourists is the, the North is branding a road. Okay. What? Say again. Branding? Branding road. a road. So there are a two brilliant cases. There are more. I mean there, you know, you know, there, there are other roads that are kind of branded in the way that American railways, you know, you had the 21st century limited and the star what it was it, the East Coast Starliner and the you know, the American historically. You branded a railway route.
1: What you do, now sixty-six is obviously the world's most famous road, okay? Or here there's Ruta Quaranta in Argentina, the famous Pan American that goes oh, all across. Hmm. So there is the a famous, yeah, a lot of tourists.
0: Is that yeah. you enrich a ribbon. Now someone in Scotland, and I don't know who this was, was a complete genius because everybody knew that the drive, roughly speaking, from Inverness, round the north of Scotland, down the west coast and back again, was actually sensationally magnificent in terms of the scenery. And the uh, you know natural beauties and the food's pretty good as well. Okay, and some genius decided to call it the North Coast Five Hundred, and so they took a road which was just actually a concatenation of various roads called the A nine and the A this and the B that, and they forged it into a circuit, and they effectively Mm. created a brand, where and a name. For something that didn't have a name before Did previously you'd say well look, my friends and i I think you're doing a long circuitous drive around the north of scotland you go fine yeah okay great yeah but now suddenly people were saying you know i've got three mates and we're going to do the north coast 500. what's that? okay and that was that was a piece of complete genius i think in terms of touristic branding so what you're talking about is a fundamental problem now one lucky thing is, I you know, A, I'm older, okay, I'm 57. B, thanks to business travel, I've been to quite a lot of famous places. There aren't that many places, only if Argentina would be one of them. There are only about five places that are on a real bucket list. I mean, New Zealand, I guess Argentina would be another one, I think, where they could or Brazil, or... You haven't been case. to
1: Argentina? i have be the best... <inaudible> I've been to Mexico, that's all. That's the only place I've been in. In I, I invite you, Rari. America. If you come here, I can take you around. <laughs> well,
0: here's the thing. I'm actually, one of the interesting things is that when you get a bit older, in a way, what you realize is that if you're curious, there's interest to be found everywhere, you know, yeah. you know, actually some of the most interesting evenings I've spent, the most memorable evenings I've spent with my wife and with my children are in, you know, the, the ones you sort of remember are really odd. Okay. I mean, you know, I, I've been to the past and I remember that. Of course, the past was actually magnificent. Okay. I also remember like, you know, well, the, you know, the, what you call the, uh, God, Shopsdale, but Garden, which is a huge collection of cactus and succulents, you know, or Terry S. in West in Phoenix, which is Frank Lloyd Wright's kind of Bill's architecture school. And you know, they're places like that. And actually all you've got to do is have a bit of a shifty and you discover that actually magnificence, fame is concentrated. Magnificence is practical. Now I'll give you uh, two examples of this. The museum, if you're ever in Cardiff, the collection of kind of French impressionist art there is absolutely magnificent. You wouldn't expect it. There's two very wealthy Welsh women who were the only people in Britain who really cottoned on to this artistic movement. They were rich. And they were the only people who really cottoned on when you could really afford to buy it in quantity. And so it's sensation. Okay. Where I live in Kent, 12 miles away, there's a church in a place called Tudley. Okay. It's a little English parish church because of an extraordinary incident where someone's child died in a boating accident. Their daughter died in a boating accident. The father was Jewish. The mother was Anglican. The mother, I think, had been to a Chagall ex- exhibition with her daughter shortly before she died. And they decided to commemorate their daughter by getting Chagall to replace Plain window at the end of this English parish church. And Chagall came over from Ramps, where he was actually doing some stained glass window work at Rams Cathedral. And he liked the project so much that he offered to do every single window in the church. Mm. And so you have this English parish church in Tudley, in Kent, which now literally I had lived 20 miles away from that, okay, for 10 years before I'd heard about it. And, you know, On any trip to England, I would argue, if you added that to your repertoire, yeah, maybe on the way to Canterbury Cathedral or something like that, there's a fair chance it might be the most memorable moment of your trip to the UK. Because it's just extraordinary and it's unknown and you can tell all your friends about it. You can't really say there's this really big clock in London. You wouldn't believe it, right? I mean, people know that shit, right? But actually... I think that's the problem, that fame concentrates, whereas actually brilliance is actually kind of fractal. You can find it kind of everywhere. You know, wherever you go, if you dig a little bit
1: deeper, there's something extraordinary. I mean, there, there is, Do you know, this, really, I love this quote. I actually, now I'm, I'm, I'm writing this, this kind of guide. You were talking about this, what, what was the guide you were saying? Like the satisfying
0: guide to the second verse. You could call it, you know, the agriforum you know the, the, the claustrophobic tourist guide to the second best the world has to offer. And the you know, you could even you could even deploy that with things like hotels, okay? Because you often get places where there's one really, really famous hotel, okay? You know, the highest. Is it the highest in Tokyo? Okay. Well, I'm sure the highest Tokyo is absolutely fantastic, but I bet there's another hotel. My wife and I stayed in this hotel with my children actually. This hotel Rada in Chianti in in Chianti in Italy, and it's called the Hotel Vign- the Relais Vignale. Okay, and it's a bit of an eccentric place, and because it's a bit of an eccentric place, it's got a few assholes leaving negative reviews on TripAdvisor because they just didn't get it. Okay, they said, "Oh, the furniture's a bit old. Well, the furniture, furniture's a fucking Italian, right? It's a fucking Italian manor house, right?" But you. Do you want to have like Danish minimalism, crying out loud, right? You know, the point was that this hotel was literally a third the price of a neighboring hotel, which was like 10% blingier, you know. And actually, there's also a huge, huge financial saving to be made in tourism by doing two things, which is going to places other people don't go at times of the year that other people don't travel there. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> exactly. if, you, if you actually combine those two, it's a double whammy. And that's the way to yeah, get in yeah. the system, you know. No,
1: but what I wanted I, I wanted to read you the, the quote coming back to what you're talking about the sort of like that that, that the brilliance can be found everywhere and that you don't yeah. like feel like traveling so much. There's this quote I love from Marcel Proust. I don't know if you heard about him. He said that yeah, it's proof, the, the only truth. The only true voyage of discovery, the only fountain of eternal youth would be not to visit strange lands, but to possess other eyes, to behold the universe through the eyes of another, of a hundred others, to behold the hundred universes that each of them beholds, that each of them is.
0: <laughs> the other approach that'd be interesting is the Dice Man approach, where you literally build randomness into your holiday. But one of the things I always advise people to do, okay. Is there's a strong tendency for people, particularly people who are really deprived of vacation time, like North Americans and the Japanese, less so sort of Germans and Europeans, where you actually plan out every single fucking day. Right now. And the second thing you do now, my friend, Paul Craven, who's a brilliant behavioral scientist who lives just down the road from here, he warned his children, they were going to Latin America. And they have this sort of itinerary, which is, and then we are going to Argentina. And then we're going to go to Bogota and then we're going to go to Lima. And then we're going to go to Machu Picchu. And then we're going to see the fucking grass falls, right? And actually I think one of them got ill and the whole thing was, a, and he said, you're making a total mistake here. What you need is three or four fixed points on your itinerary and leave the rest random. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, my wife and I went on a kind of drive. We, we, uh, what was it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. We were driving through Arizona and we didn't know where we were going. And we had to stumble on a brilliant and insanely cheap hotel in Tucson, okay? And we said, well, let's stay here for three, Planning see. One night, let's stay here for three. This place is great. Now, if you don't have that optionality Bill surely your holiday won't be a voyage of discovery. It will just be a, 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 a box-ticking exercise.
1: From your friend uh, Nassim Taleb, which I really like, which is the the idea of optimizing for optionality, uh, right. and I think I think in travel it applies. But but I think when we connect it to like just broader principles of like you know your, your general thinking of like marketing perceptual hacking, which I like to call it, is the the idea of the fact that on the one hand you want serendipity, which is like I love this word. The serendipity is from the tale of some Indians. But on the other hand, when we are talking about that most people have like two, three weeks, they have very low margin for error. When I was thinking uh, uh, and applies here that that they they that's why they go where everyone goes, I think, because you don't want to like end up somewhere and like two days are lost because it's like your only opportunity maybe in life to go to Argentina. So if you go where everyone goes, like the chances that you're going to like, you know, fuck up in a way (laughs) are much smaller. <laughs> absolutely true
0: and, and also you're absolutely so. Option, uh, optimizing for optionality is one of the most important ideas i think now i've got, a, yeah. I've got another friend now admittedly he's ex-goldman sachs as well but he actually is kind of retired and he makes a principle when he goes anywhere of not booking a return flight and his point is you know look this is kind of mood dependent. You know, I may decide I want to stay there for a month. I may decide I'm bored after a week. I may decide to go somewhere completely different and fly back from a different airport. I don't want that kind of, you know, line in the sand effectively written over my return journey. Did you have a car in Argentina?
1: No, I, I'm for now just, uh,
0: what, one bit of advice is hire a car. Okay. I'm going, to, I'm going to be very unfashionable here, but I'm going to launch a peer to, effectively, uh, private transport. And the reason is the public mass transit, operational on have hub and spoke system, and it yeah. works to concentrate people in places which are already crowded, okay? The magnificent thing with the car, I have a friend, an American friend, who sort of motorcycled around the United States. And the best place he ever went to was a back road. There's a back road basically between, I think El Paso and Albuquerque. And on that back road, there's a kind of weird hippie colony called Madrid. It's, it's Madrid, but they call it Madrid. Madrid, New Mexico, which is full of kind of wind chimes alternative. And he always said, oh, all the places I went to in the United States, that's the place I want to go to, you know. And it's on a back road. There's no airport, there's no goddamn railway station, nothing, okay. And the car or the RV or the motorcycle or the independent mode of transportation, I think yeah, is yeah. actually, you know, cruise ships, you know, all dock in the same fucking enormous ports. That is one reason to go on one of those blinged up luxury boutique cruises with only a hundred cabins, which is they can actually go into ports, which can't accommodate, well, i guest just guess cruise ship, you know, and so nice transit concentrates whereas the car or the motorbike or the van, they dissipate.
1: No, it's true. I went on bicycle from uh, all across Central America, from Mexico to to Colombia, and it was like the best thing I've done because we we went through, you know, when you even go by car, you oftentimes like miss the... Because the idea, I think it's connected to our logical world if we connect all the principles of like, it's about going from A to B and it's it's about the A and B point. It's about not about the, the journey. It's about the the points. And and when you go by even by car, even if it's yours, you most of the time you focus on the points. You don't really stop in some no. small village in the middle of nowhere. On a bicycle, for example, you are sort of forced because you go so slow. <laughs> you go through every possible town, you know, like that that's imaginable. So you are more like prone to to stumble upon some secrets, you know, like.
0: Another tip tip is if you rent an electric car, charging points are in weird places, okay? Hmm. So quite often, the need to charge your car will serendipitously take you to a place where you would otherwise not stop for 40 minutes. And so we have this stop in Italy and we discover this enchanting. We didn't know there was anywhere to eat. First of all, I needed a pee. So you ended up wandering into a leisure center, which gives you an idea of what a you know what a weird swimming pool is like on the outskirts of Florence. Okay, which is just kind of anthropologically interesting. And then we discovered this fantastic little café, and it was just enchanting. The woman running it was fantastic. Every single customer was local, and they did you know, actually amazing smoothies. And we we intended just to just have a smoothie, and we ended up staying there for lunch because again, I was charging So what the hell. And so building in that degree of kind of noise is really, really important, I think. And, uh, you know, he's yeah.
1: it, it, just, you know, The Surpri- surprise, I think, I, I'm reading George, uh, journal, George Gilder, George hey. Gilder. He is brilliant. I'm reading his latest book now, like, A Life After Capitalism. And I read the other one, The Knowledge is Power No, Wealth. Well, there was something... Well, the, 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 the great, his kind of great inspiration is the information theory and that basically information is surprise.
0: So you actually, you actually catch me in a very good place. So I'm actually down in Deal on the Kent coast, okay. And I jokingly said the reason I decided to buy a flat in Deal was because it was the 15th best beach resort in Britain. Okay, it's got Pebble Beach. Okay, not a sandy beach. It's not as good as Cornwall for beaches or seaside. But on the other hand, what when if we're not careful? Okay. We neglect other variables. There are two huge virtues to the East and East Kent coast. One, because it's quite populous. The population of Kent is 1.8 million. The towns, weirdly, and because the coastline is quite long, okay, because it's a very big county by British standards. The seaside results in Kent generally, with a few exceptions, aren't that crowded in the summer. But equally, because they're quite populous, they're not dead in the winter. So you can Mm. go there all year round. Now, if you go to Cornwall in the winter, everything's shut, okay? Secondly, and hardly irrelevantly, right, it's about 70 miles from London rather than, you know, 270. Which means I can come down here for a week, and if there's a meeting on Wednesday in London that I can't move, I can take the train in and out and go to the meeting, which doesn't prevent me coming down here for a week. Now, you can't really do that from Cornwall. You can't do that from Scotland. You can't, you know. You can't do it from Devon. You can't do it from Dorset very easily, but just about from Dorset, okay? But I can even drive and drive home in an hour and 20, so on occasions, my wife and I have come here for the day, even though we own a flat here, okay? And so it, So one of the interesting things is that what tends to happen is that people think, what's the best beach resort, qua beach resort? But other rather important factors like accessibility and so on and you know, year year-round entertainment. In other words, they're so keen and optimal. Now, it is undoubtedly true that if you're in Sulcombe, if you own a house worth a million pounds, if it's August, if if you're down there with your kids, if 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 if, if okay, for that week you will have a fantastic time. Although I'm too fucking crowded, but theoretically you would have a fantastic time. Okay, actually you don't. As a friend of mine pointed out, he said there are loads of restaurants. But you have to book in March. Now, my idea of a holiday does not involve, okay, going, and on Wednesday lunchtime, we're booked into Rick Steins' restaurant because I want to get up in the morning and go, I don't feel like going to a restaurant. I want to kabam to live it to my... Because <laughs> that's the kind of... You know, I don't want to be... I don't want to actually have my entire week back down to a restaurant availability. Yeah, yeah. So I actually, the satisficer isn't really compromising. What it is, is they're actually effectively, how would I describe it? They're calibrating for a greater range of variables. They're basically accounting for a greater range of variables rather than just, you know, what's the best place it you know. The
1: best is also dependent exactly? on what you... What... What what you how you weight the the variables, right? like you you put something yeah. more important than the other. like Jordan Peterson says that everything is a hierarchy. like you're always like even if you select uh like you say it's an unbiased measure, but it's always because it measures something, you know, so so it's always biased
0: what, what you choose to measure first what you choose to optimize first distorts your subsequent thinking, you know. Now, you know, it's a pebble beach, right? Well, you know, it's not as good as a sandy beach, but on the other hand, because it's a pebble beach, it's not very crowded. And if you buy a pair of beach shoes, a pebble beach isn't actually much of a problem, to be honest. Okay. You know, you can solve for those things. And so it is interesting in that, and probably we have to admit, of course, journalism plays a slight role in this, which is problematic because travel journalists Face it's, it's an adjunct form of prostitution, okay, which is you're invited to try the new five-star hotel, but it is extremely much expected that you write very nicely about it. Now, uh, I forgive okay. these guys, right? If I'm invited to go to a five-star hotel in San Sebastian, or on the same weekend, I can check out a holiday park in Skegness, okay, I'm going to go to San Sebastian. I don't blame you, okay? You go to the most exotic holiday you're offered, but as a result, travel journalism has become completely dominated by the sort of brand new five star, absolutely perfect resort, mm. which is you know, in the same way that household decoration has become distorted by, uh, you know, decor magazines. Okay, it's set a level of kind of domestic perfection which is actually inimical to quality of everyday life. Mm. You know, if your house becomes a show home, you've kind of lost in a way. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and I remember, I remember noticing this. This is a bit of a curse of. This is a bit of a kind of tangent. But I assume in your garden in Argentina, and I assume in your apartment or house or wherever it is you're renting, there's a bit of peeling paint, and there's a little bit of flaking this, and there's a tap that's slightly wonky.
1: Okay, is that fair? Oh, in Argentina, everything is slightly like wonky, yeah. you know. Like <laughs>
0: that is totally a bad thing. And no, okay. No, no. My my wife and I nearly bought or looked at buying this absolutely immaculate, uh, minimalist, highly modern converted telephone exchange in Ken, which had been converted into a kind of minimalist white cube, basically. Okay, and it was sort of fantastic, except. People when we went to look round, the people had had kids, okay, and the kids, as kids do, were like drawing their heights on the wall with pencil. And in a few places, the kids had drawn little pin men on the wall, okay. It looked like a travesty, okay. You know, you have this minimalist place where if your copy of House and Garden wasn't at right angles to the edge of the table, the place looked crap, okay. And I suddenly realised actually. This is a form of architectural aesthetic fascism. And actually, what you should go and buy is a Victorian house or a Tudor house or a Georgian house even, you know, okay. If you buy a very modern house, it looks great when it's perfect and shit. If you have got three laptops and a load of cables left lying around on the table, the whole effect is ruined. And It's bad coincidence that these people like Le Corbusier were often fascists because effectively. The theory was more important than the practical reality. You know, the to theory was more important than success in practical reality.
1: Oh, I re- recommended this. Maybe you know that there is this book about how, how to the, this design. How is it called? It's about the, the buildings of like how, give me a second. It's called the, the Timeless Way of Building by Christopher Alexander. Do you know it? It's a beautiful I've never read it. Oh, I really recommend it. It's, it's about the I think it's more like read in chapters so or like audiobook. I have the audiobook and and it's about like describing this the quality that doesn't have a name basically he's trying to pay a picture of like what 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 is this quality of of comfortable house or yeah. comfortable where you feel comfortable like living and he, he compares that it has like living features basically and and I think the modern going back to like the modern art oh. and design, it's very like sterile. So it doesn't have the the biological sort of like, oh, it grew a tree.
0: Fractal, fractal. Now, just to give an example, when we went to the kitchen of an Elizabethan house, which we also didn't buy, you know, there was a kind of weird alcove in the kitchen, which I think had previously been an oven in the 18th century. And they popped a microwave in there. (laughs) You had this kind of 18th century, there was a microwave inside it. That's how, you know, and there were piles of old magazines lying around, okay? And if the kids had drawn on the wall, it would have added to the place. It wouldn't have subtracted from it. And I remember thinking that this kind of quest for kind of alien retentive perfection is also, I think, really, really unwholesome, you know, because actually, if you go to these very famous hotels, they're all the same, fundamentally.
1: Because it's top-down, right? So I think the, the fundamental forces, like, tying it to something, like, even in, in marketing general, is that the, when you... When I also stumbled upon the Dave Snowden, the the Cinefin and the simple, yes. complex, complicated. And it's about this, like, emergent way of thinking about the, the world, of, like, the top-down, you know? Like, the communist. <laughs> yes. I'm like, we you know... We want our like faster. You want to control like everything and, and top down of like.
0: The book to read about that, is, but I often talk about in my podcast James C. Scott seeing like a state,
1: which is I the means order,
0: as perceived from the top, effectively as imposed on people at the bottom, in a way that is completely injurious to what you might call local tacit application of intelligence and judgment. So it's more important that the people at the top can make sense of how the world works than that the world actually works, if you see what I mean. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Quest for Questions podcast. If your immediate reaction after listening to this episode is either, fuck, that's some great advice, can't wait for more, where do I sign up? Or, man, I had the same idea in mind, but I assumed it's just me being weird. Thank you for sharing. Or this bastard hurt my feelings, offended my delicate soul, and should be banned from the internet. Then it means we're on the right track, doing God's work. In that case, make sure to subscribe, review, or do whatever else is allowed by technology to support this show. If you want to suggest a quest or have a question worthy of a quest, head to conradyerba.com. Go down the rabbit hole of truth each and every Sunday. Available on most podcasting platforms, YouTube and Pirate Bay. Wink wink. Let Yerba be with you.